This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield, and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements, and the stories that have been forgotten. 1972. I've got a few little facts for you. US life expectancy. Men, 67.4 years. Women, 75 years. Right. What do you make of that? What's your reaction well, to that? Well, you've got to give me what the current day is so that oh, I can make an... I would imagine right now... What do you mean you would imagine? You've got to give me facts, Rob. We deal in facts. That doesn't become impressive until you tell me that males has jumped up to 73, and I love how you're furiously typing, which means I've just got to pad out for All right. a couple of no, seconds. No, no. Um, okay, so highest life expectancy right now is Hong Kong. Uh, males, <laughs> 85. Females, 88. Right, what's the US life expectancy in 2021, Rob? Well, that's that, that's not important. Comparison. Of course it is. If you're throwing out the first line, US life expectancy in 1972 was... Well, in 2020, it was 77.3 years. For what, males? I think so, yeah. (laughs) Wrong. Look, look, I've only got the stat for 1972. I want your reaction to that stat. (laughs) The stat is, yeah, sounds great. Male 67, female 75. We've done quite well. We've added seven or eight years to our expectancy. Well, that's a lot, yeah. I would expect that over the course of 49 years. You would? With advancements in nutrition and health and fitness, yeah. That's a bigger jump than probably in the previous couple of hundred years. Again, I'm guessing here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, listen, is it impressive? The knowledge that I do have, yes. Yes, it is. It's, All right. it's impressive, <laughs> okay. Rob. Is that what you want me All to right, say? Well, I'll get some stats that will impress you more than this, that you will quibble with less. Um, price of a Peter Max sneakers, $4.44. I do not even know what Peter Max... All right, price of a pair of trainers... <laughs> $4.44. Yeah, all we need to know is it costs a heck of a lot more in 2021. Inflation. Of course. Time Magazine's Men of the Year, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Now, this was the same year, of course, that um, agents of Richard Nixon, White House and the Re- Nixon re-election campaign were arrested while breaking into the office mm-hmm. of the Democratic National Committee, which at the time was located in the Watergate complex. Yes, indeed. And, and still, when and you're in Washington, you walk past it. It's a bit nondescript, in all honesty. Richard Nixon was Time Magazine Man of the Year. That year. It just goes to show how clueless. The I mean, Watergate first scandal. of all, never trust. What are you about to say here? Just media in general. What, oh, first yeah. of all, why are these politicians unfailingly the people of the year? They're never the most deserving. Well, no. They're some, just the most front and centre. Well, they are, but sometimes sometimes politicians go above and beyond for good. I don't want to cast aspersions on every single politician that's no, worth the face of the most, earth. Most of the, most of the politicians that have made Time magazine's man of the year list... Yeah, I mean, Time magazine... Have been would have been US left, presidents who have not done that much. Would have been left with... I guess, red faces after the fact. They've went, man of the year, and then a couple of months later, the Watergate scandal hits. I know you're going to be intrigued by this little stat I've got, and don't ask me for, for more information. This okay. is all I've got. In 1972, Ted Bundy was appointed to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Which beggars belief, of course, Ted Bundy. How's that for irony? Yes, indeed. One of the most infamous serial killers of all time, but, of course, a man immensely intelligent was Ted, of course, defended himself uh, against those deplorable crimes that he was ultimately convicted for. But uh, does it surprise me? No. Uh, Having read up the Ted Bundy and his backstory, hugely intelligent and... 
Doesn't surprise me that. Now, the rumour that Walt Disney had had himself cryogenically frozen yes. was put to bed in 1972, and it was actually discovered that the California Cryogenics Society had actually started spreading that rumour. Which is ridiculous, isn't it? Well, you see that, but Walt it Walt Disney uh, was cremated... And his ashes were spread at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Free spread point. or scattered, I should scattered. say. Scattered is probably a yes. better word. They were spread. <laughs> yeah, they were. Oh, they were scattered. <laughs> they were scattered. Yeah. But I remember when I was a kid hearing that Walt Disney had been cryogenically frozen. I heard the same rumour. To be defrosted when we had the medical uh, technology. Yeah, and I think most people <laughs> listening to this equally would have heard said rumour. So I say to them, it worked. Well done, the California Cryogenic Society. It's rumours like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not very what a bizarre idea, though. Just to spread something that Walt Disney is... What are you going to come back as, as well? Well, you won't come back as anything. They just unfreeze you and then you, you stroll what? out as Walt Disney again. You stroll what? out as this what? elderly man again. Yeah, what, what do you mean, what are you coming back as? No, I know, but, like... You're not what, coming back what, as a what, dinosaur, What prospects you? have you got upon being defrosted? Is what I'm saying. You're just back alive again. I mean, I would imagine the first trip to the doctor is not going to be hugely positive. Well, Mr. Disney, uh, you've been dead for 15 years, so uh, there's that. You've got a number of health issues, so you might just want to be frozen again. And advancements in technology? Yeah, I don't know, Rob. The honest, well, the good news is it wasn't true, so we're having yeah. a conversation that doesn't need to be had. And finally, the word spam. Ever wondered where that came from? Uh, Used no. in reference to email communications. It came from a 1972 Monty Python sketch in which two customers are lowered into a restaurant and everything on the menu contains spam. The (laughs) clip, by the way, is so annoying, it's even more annoying than Baby Shark, so I'm not going to play it. But uh, the connection is that no matter what you want, you can't get away from the unwanted spam. And that spawns something, a word that we still use today when we get bombarded with emails we don't want. That is a fact. Greatest film of all time? What would get your oh, vote? Great question. You know what? We've had this debate before. I'm, I'm going to say something that a lot of people roll their eyes at. I mean, Shawshank Redemption, we've spoken about this before. It's the, I think you've said that before It's as the well. tired answer in a lot of ways, but it's got everything. It ticks so many boxes. The Godfather would be up there as well. Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. About well, it. released in 1972. That's exactly where I'm going next. Take a listen. Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Come you look terrible. Once it eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's going to give you what you want. Unbelievable performance from Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone speaking to his godson, Johnny Fontaine, the actor, the Hollywood actor who'd sort of fallen on hard times. And reading into this film and looking into the background of it, it's amazing it ever even happened or came together the way it did because the studio wanted a far more salacious gangster movie than the one that Francis Ford Coppola was was actually busy shooting. They thought that it was boring, there was far too much dialogue, there wasn't enough action. And then... Then they saw the scene in which Michael makes his stand against the... I won't give too much away in case you, you plan on watching it, but against his kind of gang rival and the crooked police officer, and they loved it. 
and from there on in they said you know what do what you want the other thing was they didn't want Marlon Brando anywhere near it Paramount were the the studio that were responsible for putting this movie together and when uh, they mentioned him as a possibility for uh, Vita Corleone the head of Paramount said he would never appear Brando in a Paramount picture so the studio wanted to cast Laurence Olivier as Vito Interesting. before eventually agreeing to pursue Brando under three conditions one he had to do a screen test Two, if cast, he would have to do the movie for free. And three, he would have to personally put up a bond to make up for potential losses caused by his infamously bad on-set behaviour. Okay? Mm -hmm. So... Coppola surreptitiously lured Brando into what he called a makeup test, which in reality was the screen test that the studio demanded. And when Coppola showed the studio test, they liked it so much they, they dropped the second and third stipulations and agreed to let Brando be so in the movie. he was paid. Because I think that's another little story that often does the rounds, that Marlon Brando wasn't paid. That was no surprise to me to hear that, because I thought, the, well, the rumour when I was a wee kid when I watched this was oh, Marlon Brando didn't get paid for that, but you just kiboshed that yeah because he did interesting because he blew them probably away. not huge money yeah but he was still paid for the work that he did yeah, I yeah. Mean, imagine yeah, yeah. it's the millions that the Brad Pitts and the Morgan Freemans and that get today but he was still paid for the work that he did I always did. read that he put cotton cotton wool in his cheeks is that so, what he did yeah just to kind of puff the cheeks out a bit and kind of help with the iteration the, yeah. the voice that he was trying to he was trying to assume but um, Robert De Niro auditioned for of course Robert De Niro played the young Vito Corleone in Godfather right. Part 2 brilliantly I might add yeah. he auditioned for the role of Sonny take a listen you're going to take both of them out on me you're going to take them and you know what they're going to do to you and you know what you do when you knock somebody off that's what you do you get his you get his brains all over your nice new Ivy League suit Michael that's what happens Sonny's played by James Caan, yes? That's right. Now, he auditioned, but uh, the director, Francis Ford, thought his personality was too violent for the role. He would later appear, of course, as I mentioned, as Vito Corleone in The Godfather, and he'd win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his work. Um, they actually had family dinners to help everyone get in character. Coppola held improvisational rehearsal sessions that <laughs> simply consisted of the main cast sitting down in character for a family meal. The actors couldn't break character which the director saw as a way for the cast to organically establish the family roles that you see love in the it. film love it it's it is brilliant movie, it is brilliant i've seen it so many times it is an amazing film it's not something you'd go back to a lot you know i'd watch goodfellas probably more easily yeah, now Godfather, you know I mean? Godfather is a Sunday a lazy Sunday afternoon for me back in the UK it's yeah. pouring rain outside and you think you know what i just want to get some popcorn i'm on the sofa i want to watch a good movie What movie springs to mind when you hear this? Think Ving Rhames and Bruce Willis. Yeah, it is. When he's got pride. Oh, yeah. That's your pride. And then I can't say the next word. Oh, yeah, of course. But then he says, with you. <laughs> it's a great song, that. Al Green, let's stay together. Yeah, Al Green. Um, there's an interesting backstory to, to all of these songs, actually, and it's been in many a movie. It's been in uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Munich, On the Line, and, of course, famously in Pulp Fiction as well. Um, the producer, Willie Mitchell, gave Al Green a rough mix of a tune he and drummer Al Jackson had developed, and Green wrote the lyrics in five minutes. 
Five minutes, he wrote the lyrics in. Now, he didn't want to record the song for two days, uh, but he argued back and forth with the producer. He did a 100 takes before he got one he liked, and even then he wasn't sure the song was any good. And it was Willie Mitchell, the producer, who said it had magic on it, he said. Five minutes to write yeah. a song with magic on it. I know, amazing. Amazing. How about this one? 1972, on uh, a fast-growing, in terms of popularity, British television show called Top of the Pops, a flame-haired David Bowie made an appearance with this song. Then the loud sound did seem to Bowie's performance of Starman on top of the pops back in a day when that show could make or break a career yeah, yeah. that would catapult him to stardom and it would prove wildly influential as well on the next generation of particularly English rockers uh, Lowell Tolhurst of The Cure wrote in his memoir I remember sitting on my couch at home with my mum watching this spectacle unfold and at the point where Bowie sang the line I had to phone someone so I picked on you he pointed directly at the camera and I knew he was singing that line to me and everyone liked me that's brilliant it's great isn't it it's how so someone good. can inspire the next yeah. generation now speaking of films and famous song tracks Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of this Stone song from the brilliant album Exile on Main Street judging by how many times he's included it in his film scores Casino. Yeah. I think it's in... Is it in Goodfellas? It might be. It's definitely in Casino. It's been casino. pretty sure it's in um, The Departed as well. Is it? Yeah, he, lo- he loves it. He loves it almost as much as Gimme Shelter. Oh, that's the tune. That's always the tune I was hoping you were going to play. Uh, not, not, not from 72, unfortunately. No. Um, but it became actually one of the most popular songs on the Exile on Main Street album, which is one of the Stones' best album, best studio albums. Um, and actually, even though it was never released as a single, it's made its way onto the set list of many a Rolling Stones concert as well. We do like a bit of Neil Young on yeah, our show. And this was the first song recorded for the Harvest album. Love lost such a cost. Give me things that don't get lost. Like a coin that won't get tossed Rolling home to you There's a weird story to this song as well about Neil Young buying a cattle ranch from an old man (laughs) and comparing their respective lives. The old man apparently said to him that you are very lucky to be able to afford a place like this at just 25 years of age. And Neil Young replied, I am just a real lucky guy. And this old guy, who apparently was called Louis Avia, was rather bemused. 25 years of age. He spent 350000 on a ranch. Yeah. 
That is remarkable. Yeah. Now, we featured this song on the show before. In fact, we've interviewed the lead singer, I believe, on this very show before. Sonot spoke to Ian Gillen, wasn't it? That's right. And the song Smoke in the Water by Deep Purple. And I I couldn't believe how biographical the song was, or at least how how literal the lyrics were. You know, I remember we remarked on the time when they were talking about this fire at the casino at Montreux in Switzerland on December the 4th, the year before that, at the Frank Zappa concert. I thought it was all just figurative, but it was actually literal. An amazing song um, a great about song, the that. band witnessing this this fire um, that ultimately the, the way they got the smoke on the water was that the smoke had covered Lake Geneva. Yeah, that's it. That's amazing stuff. Yeah. Now, you made the claim that no man or no artist has had more iconic hits well, we than got, Elton John. We got loads of messages in on this. I, I watched Rocketman. I got swept up in watching Rocketman quite recently, the first time I've watched it, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it. And it just kind of dawned on me, wow, hit after hit after hit. Mm. Elton John, I think, has been recording for over 50 years. And it's just remarkable. It dawned on me just how many songs that man has churned out. And this one you're about to yeah, play. Yeah, he was in his prime right back in there. 1972. He didn't write this one, though. The songwriter was a guy called Bernie Taupin. That's it, yeah. And he was driving near his parents' house in Lincolnshire in England. And he said he had to write his ideas down as soon as they popped into his head or they could just disappear. So he drove through the back roads as fast as he could, got to his house, and then wrote the opening line to the song, She packed my bags last night, pre-flight, zero hour, 9am, and I'm going to be high as a kite by then. And, of course, it turned into this. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time The touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man that think I am at home Oh, no, no, no That burning out his fuse up here alone, that appeared as the centrepiece of a commercial for Volkswagen Passat. (laughs) And a lot of people had lots of different interpretations of what those words up here alone actually were. From telephone to cheap cologne to motorhome to provolone. (laughs) That's kind of a mistake I would make listening to a song. You'd be singing along, (laughs) wouldn't you? Uh, Now this one, oh, I love this song. This is brilliant. This was written and actually released in the last couple of weeks of 71, but it didn't make it into the charts until the following year in January of 1972. Well, I know that you're in love with him because I saw you dancing
A favourite of Tyson Fury's, I believe. You know what, Rob? It's a favourite of mine on a Friday night at about 2am. <laughs> American Pie. You often hear. Always the final song you hear at a wedding, isn't it? <laughs> it and is. everyone just everyone huddles into the middle yeah. and starts singing it in well, unison. In Scotland, it's American Pie followed by Old Lang Syne. And then that's, yeah, that's it. That's the other one New Year's Scotland. Eve and a wedding. It's always Don McLean. And he wrote it in honour of, inspired by actually the death of Buddy Holly. That was the day the music died, February the 3rd, 1959, when Holly, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper were killed in a plane crash after a concert. And McLean was a 13-year-old paperboy in New Rochelle, New York, when wow. Buddy Holly was killed. He learned about the crash when he cut into his stack of papers and saw the lead story. And that's what inspired that song. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we've got sport to come in this particular edition of the Time Capsule. Got to admit, though. Pretty good oh, year, right? Yeah, seventy. The seventies. I say I wasn't born in the seventies, but it was a heck of a decade for music. Yeah, it certainly was, and so much variety as yeah, well. Didn't even get to Aretha Franklin and Rod Stewart. This is a tune. This is from Harvest, Neil Young's brilliant album oh, of nineteen seventy-two. Fantastic. We grumble and moan about FIFA and UEFA on this hell-bent mission to add nations to these various Blue Ribbon events like mm-hmm. the World Cup and the Euros. Consider this, though, Chris. In 1972, the fourth edition of the UEFA organised event only had four countries playing in the tournament. Uh, final, cons- the tournament consisted of the semi-finals, a third-place playoff and the final. <laughs> that was it. Uh, the hosts were announced after the qualifying round, which meant all teams had to participate in the qualification process for the final stage. Mm. Belgium was chosen among three candidates. The other bids came from England and Italy, whose teams did not reach the semi-finals. Of course, West Germany won it. I mean, they'd have won it anyway. If there were 74 teams, they'd have probably won it. They beat the Soviet Union 3-0 in the final. Gert Müller scored twice and Herbert Wimmer at the Hazel Stadium in Brussels. Um, In the European Cup... It was the year of Johan Cruyff. Yeah, the Ajax team that won three in a row, didn't they? That Ajax team, Johan Cruyff and its pomp, Renus Mikkels as their coach. And yeah, that Ajax team right up there is one of the very best that we've seen in European football, if not world football. And Johan Cruyff would do the business there and then head off, of course, to Barcelona. Yeah, that was the second year in a row that the European Cup had two Dutch teams competing in it. And Ajax, again, three in a row. And, and they've just been established as 
just an absolute a club of immense pedigree, even when they aren't at the sort of top of the tree, so to speak, in European football, they're churning out incredible oh, talent. They are. That, that's a conveyor belt, a production line. Even to this day, there are some wonderful young players coming through at Ajax. They've got a system, they've got a way of playing. It's wedded to the total football mantra of Rainus Mikkels and Johan Cruyff. And it's just a wonderful football club. No matter the money that comes in the game, there are institutions. You know, we talk about institutions, footballing institutions. Ajax are one of those. Mm. You, you cannot not like Ajax for what they stand for the brand of football they play the the investment in youth the, the giving a chance to young players as well Jeepers fired a young boy now and the clubs came calling Ajax or Borussia Dortmund one of those would be the place to go because you know fine well they'll be well looked after now, in 1972, Munich hosted the Olympic Games, the big stories. It was very political that year. It was, it was the height of the Cold War. The US men's basketball team, 63-0 and in Olympic history going into the finals. They lost by one point to the Soviet team in one of the most controversial events, controversial events in Olympic history, and they never accepted their silver medals. They're which not. we see a lot these days. I mean, the so England team didn't the, uh, accept their runners-up medal, Soviet did they? Soviet Union getting, I guess, their, uh, their own back. I, mean, I know Miracle on Ice is still a, a way off at this point, but uh, yeah, it's funny that the US happy to sing from the rooftops about the Miracle on Ice, and yet here they are, the US basketball team being beaten by the Soviet Union's. Mark Spitz was in his pomp in 72, oh, yeah. a nine-time what Olympic a champion. Well, this is it. Jokingly... He told the Russian swim team coach in that year that his moustache no increased way. his speed in the water, no deflecting water away from his mouth. The following year, every Russian swimmer no. was sporting a tash. That is brilliant. That is the story of the day. It's the best thing I'm taking away from this conversation tonight. Oh, cheers. No, I mean it, though. That's, that is brilliant for Mark Spitz. I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing Mark Spitz oh, at yeah. the Larius Sports Awards when I was a, a budding journalist. Oh, we're going back to 2008, I think, over in Barcelona. Got a bit of time with Mark Spitz. Lovely feel. A bit odd. He was, he was not sporting old? a moustache, but a heck of a swimmer. And the fact that he told the Russians that and they went off and all came back a year later wearing moustaches. That's amazing. <laughs> Marginal gains, as exactly. Dave Brailsford would say. Uh, Jack Nicholas had a good year in 72. He won the first two majors, the Masters and the US Open, by three shots apiece. Uh, the US Open victory tied him with Bobby Jones for the most majors ever won at 13. And he would go on to set a new record by the time he retired from the sport at 18. And of course, we all know that one will stand for a long, long time. Yeah. Because Tiger ain't catching it now. No and one's, uh, and no one's getting close to it. Not in our lifetime. It's no. amazing what he did. Uh, he won seven tournaments in 1972 and he finished second three times. Consistency. Unbelievable. Billie Jean King, though, was arguably the athlete of the year. Uh, she won three Grand Slam titles. She did not win the Australian Open because she was, not because she was defeated, but she chose not to play in it. Mm. So he probably would have won it if she'd gone down yeah, there. She should have. Why did she not? For uh, no, no reason given interest. on this, but okay. um, she cemented her reputation as one of the all-time legendary tennis players, and that's 1972 for Cracking you. Cracking year 72. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Big Music, Godfather from a movie perspective, right up there. What a year. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to The Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.